0: So, Natan Last, welcome to Superstructure and Money on the Left.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, so the occasion of this short little interview that we wanted to do with you was uh, a piece you published in our vertical that can be found right on the homepage of moneyontheleft.org titled A Graceful Kind of Non-Absence, where you go through, among other things, uh, the poems of John Ashbery to... uh, think about a bunch of questions that relate to what we might call the ongoing MMT critical theory project. And so, um, you know, so glad to, to have this piece in the vertical and, you know, I encourage listens, listeners to check it out both before and after this conversation, but, um, yeah. So thanks again. Thanks for, for being here.
1: Yeah. It's a pleasure.
0: Um, so, I'm sure listeners are not necessarily familiar with your work, though there is quite a bit of it to be familiar with and excited about. Uh, for starters, could you you know, explain uh, or, or offer a few tidbits about who you are, what sort of work that you do, and perhaps how you came to thinking about the questions you do in this, this article?
1: Sure, um, so I am currently a graduate student at Columbia University. Um, I study sort of the political economy and law, um, mostly of migration, although political economy and law in general, Um, but I study it through a bunch of different vectors. So more of a hardcore economics lens, um, a a lens of, you know, literature and aesthetics more generally um, and and also a kind of policy and advocacy um, question too. I, before grad school worked in uh, economic consulting, working for nonprofits, uh, did a lot of work in employment, um, which kind of you know the first time I saw the Bureau of Labor Statistics data that like care work is the next <laughs> big thing, I think that that kind of really um, that kind of really uh, uh, affected me. Um, and then I worked for a couple years at a uh, at the International Rescue Committee. so I worked in refugee resettlement um, and humanitarian aid and I think, you know, I, I've I've heard, I've been really uh, interested in the conversations that, you know, you and Will and other folks at Superstructure, Natty and folks have talked about, like, breaking free of neoclassical economics, right? And I think I was just more of a slow learner than y'all. So I think uh, I um, was an econ and a, a neuroscience uh, student um, in college, um, but I was always taking poetry classes and created writing classes. The first time I saw an Ashbury poem, a poem was in a workshop at Brown. Um, and it took me a long time to walk away from some of the neoclassical strictures. And I had a, a bunch of detours. Uh, I, when I worked at IRC, the International Rescue Committee, you know, the idea of like cost effectiveness is part and parcel of most nonprofit work, especially global nonprofit work. And I just got really interested both in the zero sum mentality that that inculcates, but also just questions of who decides effectiveness, what effectiveness means outside of a kind of dry or sterile optimization problem. So those were, those are always been questions that I've been thinking about. Um, how do we, you know, measure, uh, what's working in, in social policy and how do we think about, um, moving away from the kind of zero sum cost effectiveness structure or did this work, you know, um. Mentality that I think you know lots of the places that I've worked at um have kind of been um drowning in unfortunately, and I think the m m t hook i mean i think i i came to it from reading a lot of feminist economics nancy fulbra um a lot of um you know i i would read like sam Bowles and herb Gintis back in the day right and thinking about kind of incorporating a more sensitive and labor oriented um system into an economics outlook but I I got a little bit dissatisfied with that kind of thinking um and I think I I, I met Nathan Tankus (laughs) in New York uh it's it's it's, it's that's how it happens
0: yeah that's how it uh, always starts doesn't it (laughs) it's
1: like 10 p.m at Veselka and you know everyone's yeah that's how that's how it happens and he you know I just found that um that line of thinking really compelling um was you know I graduated uh high school at the at the you know turn of the great recession and i was very interested in money and debt and once i got more focused on humanitarian aid and and the global perspectives of course questions of monetary sovereignty and currency devaluation and the sort of you know the big bed wolf of the washington consensus those questions really came to the fore um and i think just through all of that i was really interested in the aesthetics here i mean i i uh, i'm a drummer i play music and and i write poetry as well and so I think yeah I think these, these those two tracks have never felt fully separate and, and hopefully more parallel than than different
0: it, it's funny you say that I I wasn't necessarily sure where this interview was going to go but there's a lot of um residences uh, oddly enough with uh your trajectory and and my own I I have a BA in econ but I was also you know profoundly interested in the questions of aesthetics and ultimately went went there too. And so, uh, yeah, I just find that really interesting and compelling for thinking about the way we can, you know, supplement and support the austerities in, in this mm-hmm. discipline with, with, you know, our interests and sensitivities and the, and these sorts of, these sorts of um, genres or, or grammars, might we say, um, For for thinking about global issues, and yeah, I mean, I would also be remiss when talking about your background if we didn't talk about crossword puzzles, (laughs) um, which so some some listeners might not know or or they might, but um, Natan is uh, has produced crossword puzzles for the New York Times and the New Yorker and. Um, including some with MMT themes. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that trajectory and line- lineage a little bit for us.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it's really fun to be a, uh, an MMT hype man uh, in the, in the black and white grid. I remember putting, <laughs> I think I was the first person to put, to clue owl by way of deficit owl. And, you know, it, that's good. Cause that's fresh. That was like, I think when MMT was uh, up and coming or maybe this latest wave of up and comingness. um, yeah, I, I write crossword puzzles and I sort of, I've been doing it since I was in high school. Um, you know, outlets like the New York Times are freelance and I've just always been a word person. My parents speak a lot. of. My mom is a um, immigrant um, uh, and, you know, grew up, my dad is a sort of like jolly cosmopolitan and I had a bunch of languages where I was kicking around in our house and, you know, they're both very playful with words. Um, so a bunch of different grammars rose floating around, right? And I think um, uh, the like abstraction of a cross-rook, it was a really interesting curatorial form to just put stuff that I thought was interesting next to other stuff that I thought was interesting. And I think of it like collage, like a like an Ashbery poem, or or like any sort of interesting aesthetic uh, tension-producing object. Uh, but yeah, I've been making them since. Um, I was about 16, and, and now I'm lucky enough to be on the sort of rotating roster for the New Yorker. And um, the great thing about that outlet is that they're really, really, really open to uh, pushing the boundaries of language. Um, the, the, you know, the New Yorker poem, uh, the New Yorker crossword is much more of an Ashbury poem than, say, the the Times crossword, uh, in that mm-hmm. everything gets to to go in. And I think I had job guarantee. In a in a puzzle for the New Yorker a couple of years ago, and I think it's just like you know that's a policy that I write and research about, and I'm really excited about, and have been for some time. And I think, it well, you know, therefore it makes it into the crossword because uh, it's something I'm thinking about and care about, and hopefully, hopefully it's gettable with the crossings.
0: Yeah, I mean, crossings is a is a nice word that we can perhaps depart from, um, from your specific, you know subjectivity to to the what you've produced for for a vertical and it's interesting thinking you know now my mind is wandering in in the cross crossword puzzle land and all the analog possibilities there uh, rhetorically but i think before we get there perhaps we could start with um having you explicate a little bit of what your dare i say argument is in the piece for the vertical and um, perhaps some of the, the sort of registers with which you, you make it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I thought of the piece uh, because I had noticed, I mean, these words are, are sort of common to critical theory, immediacy and immediacy, but I had um, noticed Scott Ferguson's use of, you know, uh, mediated immediacy to talk about uh, this kind of bad version of, you know, thinking of money as, as, as social exchange, but not quite letting it get into the abstraction that the MMT register is concerned with. Um, and so I had seen that pretty close in time to when I had seen, um, an article in Boundary Two, Ben Lerner, who's a writer I really like, and a, another sort of big Ashbury uh, hype man. Um, Lerner had, had this piece called The Future Continuous, thinking about grammar, right? Thinking about the sort of forms and grammatical constructions in Ashbery um, and he calls the effect of reading an Ashbery poem lyric um, immediacy so you know there's lots of um, lyrics that that have that like immediate eye and that grounding and experience and those are those are great Um, but the special magic of an Ashbery poem is this you know, I think what Lerner calls, you know, you're reading about your reading in the time of your reading and you're sort of experiencing um, mediacy and an abstraction, um, the jumping around of pronouns and the the nomination of nouns and possibilities with long sentences that never really fully crystallize um, into something that, that, that still offers a kind of presence. And I think in general, like this tension between, Uh, you know a social presence that doesn't have to be brought down to the ground as Ashbery talks about in that poem is something that I'm really interested in so that was the seed is just thinking those two things um, together just like that overlap and I think Ashbery being a poet of um, multiple possibilities you know he has this line that I think is really applicable to his own work where he's reviewing a Gertrude Stein book and calls her work like a hymn to possibility, and I think all of his poems are sort of hymns to possibility. Um, and I was interested in the way that uh, abstraction, is spe- I mean, you know, there's lots and lots of abstract poetry, but especially in the Ashbarian collage space, um, how that was a kind of MMT, like a sort of you know implicit MMT argument. I mean, it wasn't going to be an argument about money, the thing necessarily, and that's good because. Ashbery uh, doesn't really talk about things that much uh, and MMT doesn't think of money that way either so it was going to be more of a formal analog that there were ways that the poetry moved that was similar to the kind of um, social debts that, that MMT imagines, and the kind of expansiveness that MMT imagines
0: I, I love all of the um, the layers of meaning and even just your uh, description and, and sort of Articulation of, of what drew you uh, to this argument, and I think one that stands out to me is this that you, you talk about the way um, meaning or or the grammar of, of the poems that it doesn't crystallize right and um, and thinking about the the way this metaphor of the crystal is, is used at least for me in the way, like to describe money in, in a lot Mm -hmm. of Marxist literature, um, as a, as a sort of a prism of value that, that, you know, it functions socially as that sort of located, right. This sort of sense of mediated immediacy, right. Um, it, there's something, yeah, there's just so many layers of how then, the hovering the the floating language as as you describe it can opens up again you know i find myself quoting you hymns of possibility right there, there are different ways of articulating um the world around us and and different ways of imagining and keeping keeping that imagination whether you want to call it a door or you know however you want to call it open right and for for uh for rearticulation, there's something mm-hmm. really powerful in that. And, and uh, you know, I'm I'm really glad that you wrote it and, and sort of opened your open this door for us to think about. Um, and I think there's perhaps one way we could keep keep sort of floating or hovering in this space <laughs> might be to um, to talk about your specific argument about money as time. Right Versus a sort of sense of money as space, so if you could if you could elaborate on that i I'd really appreciate it.
1: yeah, so um you know the the you know the time is money metaphor um when I was undergrad, I was really interested in sort of embodied cognition and the the way these arrows of of metaphor go, right so so time is money is like often understood to mean that like time, this abstract thing is understood. By way of money, this less abstract thing, but but I just think you know on the MMT view that's that's wrong, and um, the arrows kind of point in all these different directions, and you know the bad version of that is what the the poem that I that I analyzed most closely at the beginning, the national debt, you know, calls the bad mathematics of you know bringing putting to the ground right. There's all of this kind of gravity pressing down on a kind of money that's a little bit too real, and um, austerity politics that reminds me in the poem. Uh, That I try to flesh out like very specific reading, which is always really dangerous with uh, (laughs) Ashbery to take them a little bit too literally. But they reminded me of Thatcher, right? This idea that there's this grounding zero sum uh, version of money, and then it's related to this grounded zero sum version of time. Um, And that comes out in (laughs) the medium.com, which was like too funny not to use because it was medium.com. Post the by, by a financial planner who, who speaks in talking about grammar and this like really harried uh, advisory tone that everyone's going to follow these kind of tiktoks, um, That you know time is money it doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, actually, you know time is even more limited than money. Um, and what I like about that is that you know part of, I mean, there's an uh, you know I, I don't know if this is true for everyone, but but MMT for me isn't is is you know both a sort of set of, um, analytical tools that, that feel correct, but they also feel urgent. Right. So the, Mm. the, we don't have a lot of time left, um, you know, construction, whether it's the IPCC or, uh, you know, any, any other sort of urgent climate change mantra. Um, it's interesting because of how, you know, time is the sort of original it's everywhere it's infinite. And so, to reverse the time as money of the financial planner, where both of them are actually quite limited in that austerity conception, uh, to me is to think about time and money as still having a relationship um, and being able to, to mediate relationships, um, not just across space, but across time, right? I think, you know, one of the one of the MMT kind of lines that really sticks with me is that, you know, the, the budget is a moral document, right? Thinking about social provisioning into the future and, the one of the like the reason that the time is money thing works well for Ashbury is because, um, you know, there's there's tomes and tomes of criticism about how he is the poet of time or the poet of time, kind of becoming space, um, and the the way Ashbury wants to float above all of that is 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 I think this is in the Learner piece in Boundary Two, like he talks about the daylight mode right being pinned down to the daylight mode uh when people want to attach him to the firm reference of his words he wants to float above that and it's like the i don't remember the exact quote but the nighttime mode is the one that won't reveal its source and he's like this he's he's very impish and he just doesn't and jokey right? he doesn't want to be pinned down um and yeah i mean i think i think you know so there's that there's 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 this idea that that um both time and money need not be finite, but even keeping the urgency of something like climate change in mind, you actually need to think time and money much more expansively um, in order to solve, you know, incredibly urgent problems. And I think the commons of the poem, of an Ashbury poem, where there's not just an eye or, or a lyric eye, you know, telling the reader how it is or how, how that eye is feeling, um, there's a ton of pronouns. there's an i and a u and the u in line two might not be the same u in line seven, and so you get a kind of commons you get a kind of um futurity because the the pronouns have morphed in the in the reading of the poem and because the spatial expansiveness of the poem makes you just you know think that everything's going to be you know that it's a hymn of possibility it's just that the future will be expansive in the senses of time and money yeah i
0: mean like you know that it's really beautiful the way you talk about it and thinking about a sort of mediated commons on those terms that is that's still open and and urgent and and ongoing it yeah you know it, it it resonates in a in a sort of at a different register i think than a lot of things that we've you know put out which have been in you know on this podcast which you know have been in different disciplines but i i think it's really important to highlight that um this interpretive work that you're doing um is at the center of a sort of you know a, a an aesthetic or even a sensuous project that um that isn't that is irreducible both to MMT proper, but also can is what MMT, at least on on my reading, is is all about yeah. ultimately, right? And, and um, so there's something, yeah, there's something. It's really feels just as urgent as as the um, the sort of temporal horizon as it, as you described it with in terms of the you know suffering and injustices that are both ongoing and and and, you know, we'll, we'll be at, at, the, at our doorstep uh, sooner rather than later. And yeah, I mean, you know, I, I want to thank you for, for writing it and coming on and talking with us about it. But um, before we left, I wanted to offer you um, a sort of bit moment for some last words to, to maybe tell our listeners what sort of things you're, you're working on next and, and, you know, where they can find you.
1: Yeah, no, this has been this has been really fun. Um, I am working on a couple of things. I mean, I'm really I'm really, really interested and in kind of uh, you know, hopefully tireless advocate for the job guarantee just as a mm-hmm. as a policy for sure. I mean the the wonk in me has has <laughs> refused to die, I think. But but really as a vision of the future, right? Um and I think I'm really, really I'm I'm writing something about the job guarantee right now that kind of takes us, you know, from its uh, builds on great work by folks like, you know, David Stein and um, lots of others and a lot of the work that that y'all are doing, right, to kind of I'm just run on all of the people who are kind of setting up both the historical origins of the job guarantee and the potential futures it might bring about. Um, So writing something about that um, and trying to connect it to the aesthetic side of things, right? So thinking about CETA, the last time, you know, the federal government directly employed people, it was um, an arts program and thinking about those possibilities. Um, so that's that's kind of the the near term um, stuff that I'm working on. I'm also, yep, yeah, writing crosswords, writing poems, writing essays. Uh, people can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm very bad at Twitter, uh, but but I am there. Um, and uh, my wonderful artist girlfriend told me that I should get a website. So hopefully, I'm going to get a website soon.
0: <laughs> cool definitely look forward to that and have to post that from the money on the left feed when it comes out um well Natan last thank you so much for for talking to me and and you know look look to talk to you more in the future
1: yeah definitely it's been great talk to
0: you soon trying to They can shape, they fail you,
1: each one missing its mark. Unperturbed, they've derailed me, our mouths and minds are too far apart.